Pentecost Sunday. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned last week, I began a series. I, I don't have these messages. I'm doing them week by week. But the Lord just began to speak to me about positioning. Last week, I preached to you a message. Uh, well, last week, I think Dwight preached to you, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did a great job uh, to the graduates. But two weeks ago, I preached to you a message about Jonah that I titled Positioned for Purpose. And this message today is going to go hand in hand. Uh, it's actually on about the day of Pentecost. Uh, and I want to preach to you today, if you have your Bibles, in the book of Acts chapter 2, I'm going to be reading four verses, verse 1 through 4. Uh, if you don't, it's going to be on your screen. If you're watching live, it's going to be full screen there for you. But if you will, I want to ask you if you'll stand with me, uh, if you're in the building, for the reading uh, of the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And the word said, When the day of Pentecost arrived, I'm reading the English Standard Version, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, say suddenly, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all, say all, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you are watching today or you're joining us live in the building and uh, or in person in the building and you do not understand this baptism in the Holy Spirit phenomenon that we are known for, it is my prayer that before this message is over, God will grip your heart with understanding uh, and not only that, but also desire. Uh, to obtain it for yourself. I want to preach to you on this Pentecost Sunday a message I've simply titled Positioned for Power. If you will, pray with me and for me. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for your presence and your anointing in this place today. God, I, I'm going to be the first to admit I need your help today, Lord, to deliver this word. Uh, it's, it's a different day. It's a different time. And uh, we are going to be in our seats and maybe not in the altar like we normally would when we're asking you to fill us with the Holy Ghost. But God, my hands don't need to be laid on anybody in order for them to receive. But God, if your hand and your touch is upon them, just like the cloven tongues of fire, the disciples didn't lay hands on the 120 in the other room, but you touched them with your presence. So God, that's what I'm asking you to do today. Lord, touch us with your presence. Anoint our ears to hear your word and our hearts to receive your word. We'll give you the glory, the honor, and the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. If you will be seated today. Uh, I want to thank you, Nicholas. Wonderful job. Appreciate uh, all of them so much. And if I left anybody out today, I apologize. It's taken uh, a village to do what all has been done during this time. And we appreciate all of you so much. Uh, I don't normally do stories, but I want to start off today with a story because I just really like this one. And I'm really hoping that uh, Brian Fox is in the 11 o'clock service because if he's watching right now, I'm going to forewarn him. I'm going to give him a real hard time. Do we have any other Tennessee fans in the house this morning? Oh, we do. Jamie. I'm going to give Jamie... Oh, and the Radford girls going to give y'all a hard time this morning. So just get ready. Buckle your seatbelt. This is a true story about a vacuum. Well, I said it was a true story about a vacuum salesman from Tennessee. He was down in Tennessee. Now, first of all, how many is as old as me and remember buying a vacuum from the vacuum salesman? Anybody remember that? Yeah, these younger ones don't remember that. We bought an Electrolux tank 
vacuum. Anybody remember those? Canister. That's what they were called, canister vacuums. Yeah, you pulled that thing around, it weighed about 50 pounds, trying to vacuum the house. I remember those days. This is a true story about a vacuum salesman down in Tennessee. He was out in the rural parts of Tennessee, and he had his vacuum cleaner and all of his tools and everything out, uh, and he knocked on the door of a home, and a lady came to the door. And he told the lady, I've got the most exciting vacuum cleaner you have ever seen. Uh, that was back in the days when it excited ladies to clean their house. That's another message for another day and another time. But anyway, I've got the most exciting vacuum cleaner you've ever seen. It will clean your house from top to bottom. You only have to pay this much down. How many remembers that speech? I've heard it before. I remember when my mama bought one. And the lady said, oh, that sounds real good. He said, you see that big pile of dirt over there on your floor with all those little fur balls and dust mites and things in it? And she said, yep, sure do. And he said, my vacuum cleaner will just pick all of that stuff up just like that. And if it don't, I'll eat it. She said, well... You might as well get your knife and fork because we don't have electricity out here. The moral of that story is that salesman will be sucking up dirt the rest of his life if he doesn't make sure he's got the power. How many knows what I'm talking about? That's the moral of that story. So let's talk about power just a little bit. Power is one thing, and I probably don't even need any help on this. Y'all know what I'm talking about, and I could go off on a tangent today, but I won't. But power is one thing that nations, politicians, uh, and, and a lot of people in America today covet. They covet power, businessmen. But the power that we need is not an earthly power. Can I hear an amen? God has promised his believers a spiritual power. I want to throw a quote by Vance Havner, who was a great teacher on the Spirit of God up on the screen for you to read. And here's what Vance Havner said. He said, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it or by conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Leave that up there for a few moments. I want that quote to sink in. We're not going to move this world by criticism of it, hello somebody, or by conformity to it, that's a definite yes and amen, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Of God. You see, the early church had none of these things that we think are essential for success today. They didn't have fancy buildings. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have social status. They didn't have technology. Listen to me, younger generation. They didn't have screens and high-tech lighting. Come on, somebody. They didn't have projectors and contemporary worship bands. And yet, listen to me, the church without all of those things won multitudes to Christ. And they saw many churches established throughout the entire Roman world. Why? Let's answer the question, why? I'll tell you why. Because the church had the power. Say power. The church had the power of the Holy Spirit energizing its ministry. They were a people, as this quote says, ignited by the Spirit of God. Can I tell you that the church today needs to discover once again that we have an unchanging God. He hasn't changed. We have. And we need to realize once again that there is 
power in Pentecost. Say amen, somebody. See, that same Holy Spirit power that I read to you about from the book of Acts is available for us today to make us effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. The better we understand His working at Pentecost, the better we will relate to Him and experience power. So let's answer the question, what is Pentecost? Pentecost is the fulfillment of God's promises to His disciples. They would receive power in order to accomplish His purpose. Last week we talked about God positioning Jonah for purpose. They would receive power in order to accomplish His purpose to be His witnesses. It positioned the church to obtain and maintain. Hmm, Let me say that again. To obtain and maintain the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we are far removed today from the upper room. And we are generations removed from Azusa Street. If you know what Azusa Street was back in 1906. So, what difference can Pentecost make to us today in 2020? I want to talk to you this morning about four things that Pentecost does. Pentecost provides purpose. Say purpose. I want you to notice with me the perfect timing. Throw verse 2, if you will, back up on the screen for me. And when, uh, sorry, maybe it was verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived. When? When the day of Pentecost came. Now, Pentecost is from the Greek word meaning 50th. It is referring to the 50th day after the Passover. The Passover was sacrificed on the 14th. And I know this gets deep, but you can research it. You can go back and listen to it again. The Passover was sacrificed on the 14th day of the first month of the year. And then 50 days later. So the third day following that sacrifice, listen, a sheaf of barley harvest was offered to God. The Passover was sacrificed 14 days after the first month of the year. The third day following that sacrifice, a sheaf of barley harvest was offered to God. The sheaf, that sheaf was the first fruits of the harvest. Read with me in Leviticus chapter 23 verses 15 through 17. He says, "You shall count 7 full weeks from the day after the Sabbath." From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days, talking about Pentecost, to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Why is all that important? It's important because the typology teaches us that Pentecost is about the harvest. Stay with me. Jesus enabled this same connection in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The word says, but you will receive power. Say power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the utter end of the earth. And so anytime the church, listen to me. The church. Anytime the church loses sight of that connection, she gets into trouble. 
Anytime the church loses sight that Pentecost was about the harvest, the church gets into trouble. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost for the harvest of souls. See, what actually happened that day? We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness. That's the express purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen, on that day, 3,000 people would be saved and filled with the Spirit, and then they would return as witnesses throughout the Roman world. Because when Pentecost comes, it always aligns us with God's purpose. Did you hear me? I want to preach just a moment on this. Pentecost is not about chaos. Say amen, somebody. Pentecost is not about foolishness. I'm going to preach it whether you help me or not. Pentecost is not about ignorance. Pentecost is about the Spirit of God empowering the church for the harvest. Did you hear me? Thank you for somebody for clapping. Pentecost is about the Spirit of God empowering us to reap a harvest of souls. Now, when Pentecost comes, you can rest assured power will come. I want to tell you this morning, don't be so quick to judge what you don't understand. Did you hear me? If you're watching online today, don't be so quick to judge what you don't understand because there is something about the power of Pentecost. Pentecost aligns us with God's purpose, and that is to reach a harvest of souls. If we're not seeing folks saved in the church today, it's because we lack the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit to preach the Word of God. Without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, even the word of God is a dead letter but when the Holy Spirit comes and anoints a man or woman to preach the word of God just like tongues of fire fell sometimes tongues of fire will fall again but the convicting power of the Holy Ghost will grip hearts and souls and change lives amen that's what the power of God will do God's purpose is the harvest the second thing Pentecost produces unity. Mm. This will preach right now. If I've ever seen a time in my life where there's less unity, it's the day that we're living in. Oh, I could say a lot of things, but I won't. But one of the common criticisms concerning Holy Spirit baptism is the fear that this experience divides the church. That's why, boy, I don't know why I'm preaching this this morning. I do know why I'm preaching. It needs to be preached. I know why God's given. I was so careful in my notes, and now God's given me some of this edgy stuff to say. But that's why we have churches all over the country today that want to relegate the Holy Ghost to a back room or a corner somewhere, and they want to say, oh, this service will be our spiritual service, but we got to keep order at this service. We got to keep, I want to tell you something, we can keep order. The order of the Holy Spirit is the best order you can have in a church. My plan won't get it done. Your plan won't get it done. But when God orchestrates by His Spirit, the work of God will be accomplished when the Spirit orchestrates the order. One of the most common criticisms concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the fear that this is an experience that will divide the church. But Nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact is, nothing unites the church more than when the person, 
the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit fills the church. When the person, the power, and the presence of the Holy Spirit fills the church, nothing unites the church more. The first thing we notice about the people of God that he baptized in the Spirit was their unity. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Luke identifies who these people were that were gathered. Read it with me. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Ma- Bartholomew, not Mule, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Notice that it was the apostles. Jesus' mother Mary, the women who followed Jesus, and several other unnamed followers of Jesus. These were all men and women from varying backgrounds, somebody help me preach, from varying opinions who had two things in common. You know one thing I've learned in seven and a half years of pastoring that I really learned when the pandemic hits uh, is the church is made up of people with varying opinions. Hello, somebody. It's a wonderful thing, though. I said it's a wonderful thing. If everybody, ask yourself this question. If everybody in this church were just like me, what kind of church would this church be? It's a good question to ask yourself. It's a good thing that the church is made up of people of varying backgrounds, varying color of skin, varying uh, opinions and even sometimes uh, varying interpretations and beliefs. It's okay. The Bible teaches us let every man work out his own salvation in fear and trembling. So listen, these were all men and women from varying backgrounds who had two things in common. They were all witnesses, number one, to the resurrection. They all had that in common. They were all witnesses to the resurrection. And number two, they were all waiting in response to Jesus' command to remain in Jerusalem. They were men and women who simply wanted what God had promised for them. And so Luke further informs us that these disciples were gathered in one place. We're not told specifically where they were, uh, whether they were still in the upper room or not. Uh, when we know that at some point they were in the temple court because that's where Peter preached his sermon was in the temple court. We know they were in the upper room when the baptism came, but we don't know where they were uh, up until the point where Peter was preaching his sermon in the temple court. It was also their custom to attend the morning and evening prayer times at the temple. So they may have been in the temple court, uh, some of them that were not in the upper room when the Spirit was poured out, or they may have been uh, in the upper room with the 120 and they came out to the temple court. But more significant than the place is the position in which they were meeting. The English Standard Version says that they were all together. The New King James Version says, or the King James Version, says they were in one accord. See, there's been a lot of misconceptions and errors when it comes to unity. To understand what this unity is about, you need to understand that unity is not a contrived unity manipulated from within. Hello. It is also 
not con- a controlled unity that is forced outside the church. Has anybody noticed that you cannot force unity? You cannot control unity. Anybody notice that? See, the word that Luke uses, and I don't do this much, but I did it because I want you to understand. The word that Luke uses in the Hebrew is the word, and I hope I get this right, uh, homothumadon or thumadon. And it occurs, that word occurs 11 times in the book of Acts and once in Romans chapter 15 and verse 6. And here's what it means. It means with one accord together. Say together. When it's used as an adjective, the word carries the thought of willingly and voluntarily choosing. We have this little hashtag that we use with our church all the time. We are better together. Willingly and voluntarily choosing. I I want you to notice that no one forced these followers of Jesus to be together. They chose of their own accord to be together because they had a common cause a common purpose, a common Savior, and a common desire. The important thing is the day that they had been waiting for finally came. Hallelujah. And when it came, they were ready. It pays to be ready. Say amen, somebody. They were all together in one place doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. They were praying and they were waiting on the Father's promise. Now listen, when... We will experience Pentecost when we understand the third thing I'm going to talk about. Pentecost empowers ministry. Pentecost empowers ministry. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is the primary empowering of God that every New Testament believer can experience. It is so important that Jesus gave his followers this command in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Let's look at it. And while staying with them, he ordered them. He didn't request. He didn't suggest. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now, I could preach a whole message on this, but do you know that when he ordered them, if you think that, let me, let me just put this out here for you. If you've ever wondered why everybody doesn't experience Pentecost or why everybody won't agree On Pentecost. Did you know that when he made this order, he ordered 500 people? Did you know that? He was ordering 500 people not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. That's what he ordered them to do. 500 people, how many was in the upper room? 120. What happened to the other 380? Same thing that happens to the rest that choose not to listen. Same thing that happens to the rest that choose not to ask. Same thing that happens to the rest that choose not to pray. I'm going to preach a few minutes. Same thing that happens to the church that refuses to let the Holy Spirit in. Hello, somebody. Same thing that happens to the body of Christ that's not seeking for everything that he has to offer for us. That's what happened to the 380. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. Verse 5, for John baptized you with water. But you will be baptized. Say baptized. Baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I'm going to shoot down some doctrine that a lot of people will want to tell you about a separate experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, 
Following salvation and being born again, spirit baptism after water baptism is the first step in your development as a Christian. If you want to draw closer to God, God wants you to be baptized, say baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now listen, those who say, I don't need to be baptized in the Spirit, do not fully understand it. They do not fully understand it. The baptism of the Spirit is not the same as salvation. At salvation, I'm ready for you. Those that want to argue with me, I'm not going to argue, but I'm ready for you. At salvation, you are born again by the Spirit. This is what is called the regenerating work of the Spirit. The Bible says that we are indwelt by the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit happens the moment that we are born again. What did the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9? He said, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. This is where people will want to shoot you down and say, uh, or, or maybe back you in a corner and say, I, I, re- I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I got saved. No, no. You received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you got saved. All those who have been born again have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You don't, now here's here's a term that we use wrongly in Pentecost. You don't get the Holy Ghost at a later time. Oh, I got the Holy Ghost, people say. No, you get him from the beginning of your new life in Christ. Now stay with me. Every believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. But the Bible plainly shows that spirit baptism is different from and occurs after this indwelling experience. So if I already have the Holy Spirit when I was saved, then what more do I need, you might ask. There are two benefits that we derive from the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The first baptism is what God wants to do in you. Say in me. He wants you to experience a greater intimacy with God. He desires to immerse you in His Holy Spirit. The immersion, this immersion is indicated in Acts 1 and 5 where Jesus says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized. That's why I told you to repeat that word a minute ago, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Greek word there for baptize is baptismo. And it means to literally be immersed and covered over. It does not mean to be lightly dipped or to be sprinkled. It means to be completely immersed, drenched in, saturated with the Holy Spirit. This immersion is not a baptism into uh, an experience or an impersonal force. I want you to remember that the Holy Spirit is also a person. Did you realize that? He is the third person of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This means that the Lord's desire to baptize you with the Holy Spirit means that God wants to immerse you in the third person of the Trinity. God the Father loved you. Jesus gave His life for you. But the Holy Spirit came to baptize you and position you for power. Now, Luke describes this scene in the upper room uh, in verses 2 through 4. He says, and suddenly, this was our main text, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were 
all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pentecost can be summed up in one word. Change. Mm. Change. This intimate immersion affected both their spiritual awareness and their physical senses. Now, we find here three areas of change that the Holy Spirit brought. Three areas. First, their hearing was influenced. When the sound didn't say it was a wind, it said it was the sound as of a rushing mighty wind that filled the house. They began to hear God-inspired sounds. There's probably nothing that I love any more than when we are in a worship service, or for me, more so than a worship service, a prayer meeting. When you start to hear the sound. How many knows what I'm talking about? Pentecost has a sound. They began to hear God-inspired sounds. Secondly, then came the appearance of fire that was seemingly magnetic, if you will, in its attraction to every hungry seeker. And they began to see God-inspired signs. They heard God-inspired sounds, and then they saw God-inspired signs. Has anybody ever caught in a place of worship or in a spirit of prayer? I hope there's some people in the building. I see some heads nodding that can testify to this this morning, that when you got in that place of prayer, your eyes might have been closed, but God was showing you things that you hadn't seen before. And not only were they hearing, uh, were their hearing and their sight affected, but fire came to rest on each of them, and they were all literally filled with and immersed by the Holy Spirit. But now Luke uses the word field here. I want you to, the, the word that he uses for feeling is used to indicate the process of being anointed with the power of the Spirit for divine service. That's what it means. The fire fell from heaven and it separated, boy I love this, if you can picture this, to rest on every person in the room. Their entire existence was saturated by God. Now Tim Enlow, who is a very well-known Assemblies of God teacher on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's a quote from him that I want to share. He says, this was not a single flame, listen, for all to share, but a God-designed personal embrace from heaven for every single one of them. Each person had an equally, this is good, each person had an equally powerful, intimate encounter with the Holy Spirit. So should it surprise anybody then that they spoke in God-inspired words? I want to tell you something this morning. This is not just a blanket blessing. God did give it for you, as the song says, for you and your children and their children and their children. It's for every generation, as many as the Lord our God shall call. But I'm so thankful this morning that it's not a blanket experience. It's a personal experience that God will send and touch you. And once you've been touched by the presence of the Holy Spirit, you will never be the same. You'll never be the same. The sound of the wind and the tongues of fire were signs initiating the new age of the Spirit. And of the three signs that appeared at Pentecost, one of them remains constant. 
And that is the Holy Spirit enables His disciples to speak in other tongues. Now, I'm going to wrap this up. The universal question about the baptism in the Holy Spirit is how will I know that I have received? One of the most common misunderstandings of the baptism as the Holy Spirit is that when a person speaks in tongues, that's it. Listen to your pastor this morning. That's one of the most common misunderstandings, that when a person speaks in tongues, that's it. The unspoken perception then is that tongues is the baptism. And then I've heard it asked by other people, well, do I have to speak in tongues? My answer is, first of all, that's the wrong question. Hmm. That's the wrong question. Why? No, you don't have to speak in tongues. You get to speak in tongues. That's the right answer. You get to speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues is not some type of a punishment. Speaking in tongues, I'm going to preach to us this morning. Because I am, I'm like Popeye. I, I think it was Popeye. I am what I says I am. Was that Popeye? Yeah. I am what I says I am. If it wasn't Popeye, I'm me, whoever. I am what I says I am. But you uh, speaking in tongues is not a type of punishment. It is a marvelous privilege to those that are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, I won't preach to us because I ain't ashamed of it. I said I ain't ashamed of it. I, I don't want a bunch of ignorance and a bunch of chaos, but I do want the presence and the power of Pentecost back in the church. Speaking in tongues is not something we should be ashamed of. It's not something we should be embarrassed about. It's not something that we should tell people, oh, when you come to my church, you might hear somebody speak in tongues. My God, I hope when you come to my church, you do hear somebody speak in tongues. Because I hope that we have a personal experience and a personal encounter with God. Listen, you're talking to somebody, honey, that was raised on the other side of the fence. I done thought y'all was crazy. I done thought you lost your mind. I done thought it was a bunch of foolishness and there was nothing to it. But I was sitting on the front row of a Pentecost church on a Wednesday night when those people had wore themselves out praying for me anybody remember when they'd wear themselves out I mean they wore themselves out and they wore me out I mean they patted my jaws they laid hands on me one pushes and one pulls. How many knows what I'm talking about? You're just rocking back and forth and I had sit down on the front row of the church after all of that thinking they think, I, they think I want to act like them. What is this? But you got to remember, there's a lot of people that don't understand Pentecost that love the Lord with all their heart. And I sat there on that, and I was one of those. I was a 16-year-old kid that loved the Lord with all my heart. I just had never been around this. I thought it was foolishness. I didn't think there was really much of anything to it. I thought that it was just all worked up within themselves. I did. I thought it was all right because they loved the Lord too and so did I, but I didn't need that. But I sat down on that front row of that Pentecostal church and I don't know what happened because they had prayed for me for 30 minutes and I didn't feel a thing. Except I was sitting there and I began to feel conviction. And I began to think. They were still singing. Altar call was still going on. It probably wasn't 30 minutes, but it really probably was 15 or 20. Because we used to have those 30, 45 minute altar calls. Who remembers those? Yeah, we used, to, we used to get in the altar more longer than we preached or sang. The altar was the highlight of the service because everybody was hungry for the Spirit of God. 
anymore people aren't as hungry for the Spirit of the Lord. They want somebody, boy, this ain't in my notes, and I'm gonna wait, I ain't going to waste no time, and I'm going to tell you what I feel. They want somebody to come in and tell them something that makes them feel good about the sin they're living in. They want somebody to tell them something that makes them feel good about themselves and their decisions and everything they're doing. They don't want anybody to preach the convicting power of the Word of God. They don't want to say, God, I want to lay this aside so that I can have more of you. Yes, there is something to the sacrifice you make, but the Word says obedience is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. What's that mean? That means you need to obey God Monday through Saturday, not just when you're coming in the church doors on Sunday. My Lord, where is this coming from? Why does that happen? Because when we come through the doors on Sunday, there's no power, there's no conviction, there's no anointing. But when we get back to the place, when we experience Pentecost again in the church, when the power of God enables us for service, we'll live right on Monday, we'll walk right on Tuesday, we'll serve God on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That didn't cost you anything. But I sat on the front seat... And I said, God, oh, hallelujah. I said, God, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. I said, God, if this is really you and you really want me to have it, then God, I'm ready. Feel me. I looked up, and when I did, there's a little lady named Eva Mitchell. If my Dorothy family's watching this morning, little lady named Eva Mitchell, she was on that side of the church. I was sitting right there. All I remember is I looked up, and she was over here praying, and she had this, she had this for anybody that knew her, this sway thing about her when the Holy Ghost moved on her. She did this number right here. She went, she fixed right on me. And I was, I was thinking, now, God, I don't know. I don't know. After I done said, if this is really you and you really want me to have it, she turned around and she fixed right on me. And I remember her little hand. She used to do like this. she come just floating across that floor. Her little hand was just like this. And the last thing I remember is when she got right here, about right here, she touched my forehead. If the pew hadn't been bolted to the floor, I'd have carried it out the front door with me. I began speaking in tongues as the Holy Ghost gave the utterance. Nobody taught me. Nobody Nobody told me how. Nobody said you got to do this. But when the Spirit of God and the power of Pentecost fell, He filled me, baptized me, and immersed me in the Holy Spirit. I got to wrap this up. No, you don't have to speak in tongues. You get to you get to speak in tongues. You need to understand that tongues is the initial sign or evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Well, then, Pastor, what's the difference? Let me illustrate real quickly. I meant to bring it up here this morning, but I didn't. I have a receipt from a deposit that I made at the bank last week. Got a little receipt. On the receipt is the validation. It's got the date, the time, the amount of money that I deposited, the transaction number, and the number of the teller who took the deposit. When I made that deposit, the teller gave me this receipt. That receipt is not my money. That receipt doesn't spend anywhere. But that receipt is the proof of the transaction that was made. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, 
The proof of the transaction is that you will speak in other tongues as the Spirit of the Lord gives the utterance. Oh, now, Pastor, wait a minute. I don't think you have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. You don't have to speak in tongues to be saved and go to heaven. But if you are filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit, you will speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Now, there's four accounts, very quickly, of people. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to give you scripture reference because I don't have time. Four accounts of people who actually received the Spirit baptism, baptism in the Scripture. Three give details of how the recipients responded, proving their experience. And uh, I'm just going to give you the passages. You can write them down, jot them down, come back and watch it and look them up in your own personal time. But in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible said, All of them were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46, you'll find at the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, while Peter was preaching, the Bible said, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard, and they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then on down, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, while teaching the new Christians in Ephesus, Paul. So it's not just an experience that happened with one person or one believer. When Peter was preaching, it happened uh, at Cornelius' house. Then when Paul was preaching at Ephesus, the Bible said that Paul laid hands on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That's what the Word says. See, the disciples... We're not surprised that they spoke in tongues because Jesus had previously prepared them for this experience. He had prepared them to expect tongues as a sign of those who believe in Him. Mark 16 and 17, I did give you this one. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. The big question is, why would God choose such a controversial sign to prove that His spirit baptism had occurred? Here's why. James the brother of Jesus gives us a clue in James chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, of reptile, of sea, and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Lord, have mercy. Can I just say this? I could say a whole lot, but I'm going to be real careful and just say this. As Christians... We don't need to be pushing either side of the political aisle right now. Oh, it's going to get quiet. It probably got real quiet in the Facebook world. I'm watching to see if about 12 of you drop off. We don't need to be pushing either side. We don't need to choose a side. There's living proof out there that the tongue can't be tamed. And you know what's sad? Used to be you had to be there to hear it. To know what was said. But now people don't speak in tongues. They speak in thumbs. Hello, somebody. And then all you got to do is read it. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. Full of deadly poison. So why do you think the initial evidence of receiving the baptism is speaking in other tongues? Because Jesus wrote his letter to believers. Or James wrote his letter to believers and told them they had trouble controlling their tongues what could better demonstrate boy what could better demonstrate today a new spiritual empowering than our tongues which are a reckless evil hello somebody but suddenly if they were influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit can I tell you something I don't care how much you speak in tongues if you're still mean in English that's not Pentecostal power That's not Pentecostal power. 
now we're going to look at the final importance of Pentecost. But before we do, I want, to, I want to clarify three things very quickly about speaking in tongues. First, speaking in tongues is the initial sign, but it's not the only sign of the baptism in the Spirit. It serves as an outward manifestation of the Spirit and accompanies the immersion of the Spirit. A person, number two, is not saved by speaking in tongues. Hello. Neither does the absence of tongues mean a person is not saved. Hello. We have already made it clear that when a person's born again, they got the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. Spirit, spirit baptism is subsequent to salvation. And thirdly, furthermore, if you do not listen to me, those of you that stayed in tune with me out there, if you do not speak in tongues, you are not a second-class Christian. Hello, somebody. The baptism does not make you any more or less of a child of God. But the spirit baptism is all about greater spiritual intimacy and power with the Lord. If you want the power, the spirit baptism is available to you. It's all about God directing our speech in new and powerful ways. Just like Acts 1 and 8 declares, Pentecost provides purpose. It produces unity. It empowers ministry. And as they come to the music this morning, number four, it propels mission. The spirit baptism is all about God directing and empowering our speech. See, God wants to speak through us. God not only wants to increase your intimacy with Him, but also your spiritual power to minister for Him. The Spirit baptism is not just for your own personal blessing. It's also to empower us to bless others. The baptism is not just something that happens to me, but it's also something that happens through me. It didn't take long after receiving God's promise that Peter changes his posture. And immediately he was propelled into the public square where he was boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And as a result, 3,000 people were saved and subsequently filled with the Spirit. One of the saddest stories that I've ever read was about a woman by the name of Hetty Green. I'd never heard this before. I can't believe I had never read this, but she was known as America's richest woman. Listen to this. At her death in 1916, that was a long time ago, she left a fortune of over $100 million in 1916. She was an astute investor, certainly, but what she was most known for was her cheapness. She ate cold oatmeal uh, in an attempt to save on heating costs. She would not take her son to get medical help until she found a free clinic. Died with $100 million. And when she finally found a free clinic, it was too late to save her son's leg, so his leg was amputated. She hastened her own death because she would not take medicine for her pneumonia, as the free clinic would not treat her. She was a woman who possessed incredible wealth, yet she lived and died as if she was a pauper. How tragic it is when Christians live their lives with all the power of heaven at their disposal. Yet they live powerless and ineffective lives. How tragic it is. Can I tell you that God wants you and you to experience His fullness. If you will stand with me all over the house this morning. I'm going to close with this. Maybe this analogy will help. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but maybe some of you have. As Christians, we may be compared with a reservoir 
for producing electrical power like some of those that you see as you're driving to Niagara Falls. I looked at pictures on the internet. When we accept Christ, construction of our reservoir is complete. And we now have the potential to be useful and to affect lives. But until the floodgates are opened and the cascading river waters pour through, no power is generated. So it is when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we open our lives to God, and the Holy Spirit pours into us and through us. It's then that we become most effective for God's service. As with the reservoir, this power-generating experience is not intended to be a one-time occurrence. Did you hear me? This is where I'm going to hit everybody. It's not intended to be a one-time occurrence. It's intended to be an ongoing process. When our spiritual power runs low, we need to return to the source and let the blessed, the blessed presence and power of the Holy Spirit pour into us again, bringing fresh power. If the church needs anything today, it's fresh power. You want to know what will fill that new building quicker than we can get in there? Fresh power of the Holy Spirit. Closing with this. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. The words of Jesus. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Watch what he said in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. What did he say about the Spirit? Out of your heart or out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. It's for everybody that believes. For as yet the Spirit had not been given at that time but Jesus was not yet glorified. But today it's been given. And can I tell you God wants to fill you. And if you've been filled before, He wants to refill you. When He ascended to heaven, He promised us. He said, it's expedient that I go. But I'm going to send you another comforter. And when He did that, He positioned His church for power. So here's what I want us to do today. There's not that many in here. I don't know how many there are. Decent little 845 crowd. We got plenty of room. And you're in your families or individual units. We got plenty of room and plenty of time because we don't have another service till 11. We can take about five minutes. And as they sing, I want you to just close your eyes and begin to talk to Jesus. Lift your hands if you feel like it and say, God, we want to be a church of power. Pour out your presence and your power on us again. Do it today. God, not tomorrow. Let it happen today. Let it happen in us anew again.